This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. And when I say special, I mean special. This is being sponsored by TapJoy. TapJoy is making this um, conversation possible. I'm John Greathouse. You can follow me on Twitter, at John Greathouse. If you're not using TapJoy and you're selling anything online, you're leaving money on the table. It's not my money. I don't care. But if you care about your money, you should, t- you should um, contact the folks at TapJoy and see how they can help you. So we have Eva Ho with us tonight. Or I'm so excited because she is absolutely the full package, and you're going to see what I mean by that. Eva is a general partner at Sousa Ventures. I've, I have done a couple deals with Sousa. They're a great firm. We both focus on early-stage technologies. Sousa focuses specifically on those companies that can leverage the power of data to create market-leading platforms, tools, and analytics. She's also a serial entrepreneur and a founder, an incredible track record. Most recently, she was a founding executive at Factual. It's an L.A.-based um, dated company, another company that I've partnered with, a number of my companies have partnered with, and they're just a, a great company to do, uh, to do that with. Before Factual, Eva was with a little-known company, um, called Google, and she worked for about five years as a senior product manager on YouTube, right in the beginning of that whole revolution. It was an incredible opportunity for her. She got to Google because her company was purchased in 2003. Applied Semantics was the name of the company, but we know it as AdSense. AdSense created the algorithms behind the ads on the right and on the top of Google. So when you do a search term and you see those ads that are relevant, that was essentially Eva and her company. I don't have data to back this up, but I would argue that's probably one of the most profitable products ever created since the dawn of man. Billions and billions and billions of dollars of value have been created because of that uh, solution, and it's made buying and selling things on the internet much more efficient. Eva even found time to co-found Navigating Cancer, which is a Seattle-based startup. She founded that in 2008, and it's still going strong. And like everyone I try to bring into the speaker series, Eva is successful both professionally personally, and she's also giving back to the community. She sits on a number of nonprofit boards, including the California Community Foundation, the Ocean Conservancy, First Descendants, and Iridescent. She earned her MBA from Cornell, and she received her undergraduate degree from Harvard. And I mentioned at the outset that she has the whole package. She has the humility, the aptitude, and the attitude that I want all of you to exhibit, everyone watching this at home. I want you to exhibit that when you go out into the real world. Eva is, a, is in a service mode to the entrepreneurs that she funds. She partners with her entrepreneurs. She doesn't dictate terms. She doesn't tell them what they can and can't do. She sees her role as one of service, and she's helping entrepreneurs and the generation that is coming after her to be as successful as she has been. Let's welcome her to our class. Thank you so much. I am so That's pleased. incredible intro. <laughs> <laughs> I am so Thank pleased you. that you were able to make the time. I know you're super busy, um, but we're going to make the most of it. So I'm going to jump right in with your, with your background. So you have, there's many paths to entrepreneurship and there's many paths to venture capital. And your path started out being born in China, growing up uh, for a portion of your life in Mozambique, finding yourself in Boston, and then finding yourself as the head accountant for your family's business. How did that influence your entrepreneurial path? I mean, that is an incredible path in and of itself, and you were all of 10 or 11 years old at the time. So how did you go from that to sitting here on this stage today with all of that other success behind you? Yeah, um, 
Thank you for that question, John, and thank you for having me. I've, I've been wanting to be here with you for a long time, and you guys are super lucky to have John. I mean, he's just, he's given back so much to the Santa Barbara community. I'm really an icon here, so a pleasure to wow. be here. Wow, thank you. Um, yeah, so I think, uh, you know, I think each of you in the audience have your own interesting story, um, and I've been very lucky to have uh, an interesting story on my own, as John mentioned. Uh, you know, I grew up out of the country, and I came here as a refugee. Um, I actually grew up in the housing projects in Boston, in East Boston, until I went to college. Um, so my family ran a small uh, Chinese restaurant near Fenway Park. Um, and uh, in the early days, I was asked, when I was about 11 years old, to do taxes. And uh, we got audited because we just didn't know how to do file the tax forms. And I'm, I'm very short, obviously, but I was super small back then. And I remember sitting in the restaurant with this auditor, and my feet were sort of dangling off of the, of the booth. Uh, and he thought this was like a joke. Um, but, uh, you know, I think what I learned from that what was really neat was uh, I actually learned to really enjoy doing taxes. Uh, I really like numbers and detailed stuff. And uh, I, it became a game every year where I was trying to basically save my parents more money. Um, but all that taught me, I think, um, I think it goes back even beyond that, is my dad uh, was in Africa, and when he was 13, he had no parents, and he actually started a farm uh, and grew it into a sizable farm, and then we lost it all during the war. But he taught me that uh, with hard work, with drive, uh, with education, life will get better. Um, life wasn't easy as a kid. Um, I worked basically 40 hours a week while I went through, from since 10 years old, till I went to college. Um, so... You know, I was different than others, but it taught me a lot of great lessons of what hard work meant um, and what it meant to start your own business, what it meant to provide customer service at a restaurant, what it meant to manage inventory. So all those were great lessons that back then I didn't know, uh, but now in hindsight, they're really positive for me. Well, absolutely. And I think you were thrust into that role to some extent, yeah. but you, you have a brother and I'm sure someone else could have filled that role. And I, I think entrepreneurs are often that person, that we, we find ourselves in situations that the outside world thinks are strange or unusual, but we're in the middle of it. We don't realize how strange. I mean, I don't think as an 11-year-old you were sitting there going, wow, this is really strange. Yeah. You were just there trying to get that auditor what he or she needed. So I, know, I, know I don't have the same background that you have, but I did find myself negotiating with adults when I was 12 mm. or 13 years old. And I didn't think anything of it. I just thought, hey, we're here. Let's make it happen. Right. So you have that background, which is unique. How has that influenced your idea about parenting? Mm. You're, you know, now that you're, you've seen full cycle now, when you talk about parenting children or look to parenting children, what, what do you think you would draw from those lessons? And what would you maybe not do? Yeah, um, I don't have kids of my own, um, but I have it through my partners. I actually have two teenage kids through my partner, and I have a lot of nieces and nephews. And, um, you know, I went to public school, um, and I had great teachers, uh, and I worked since I was a kid, and I've always tried to tell other folks. And I work with a lot of young kids, so I have a big nonprofit that focuses on STEM for K through 12. So I work with thousands of kids every year. Um, and I always just feel kids should work at a young age. Um, and it's important to sort of really understand and, uh, the value of a dollar. Um, and it's really important to understand that respect and success uh, is earned. It's not something that should be handed to you. Um, so, if, you know, if I had a biological child, I would have been working since they were like 10 or 11 or 12 because there's all these odd jobs. And through them, I think you just learn how to be responsible, how right. to manage your time, how to coordinate. Um, time management is a huge issue, I feel yep. like, nowadays. I think 
a lot of folks just don't know how to balance different priorities. Um, so. No, I absolutely agree with that. My son's in high school and, and he'll get caught up in the moment of this out of that class. And I said, yeah. Matthew, what you're really learning here is time management. Yeah, absolutely. It's not that it's easy and it's not easy, but that's really what you're learning. I'm gonna go to the first student question in just a moment, yeah. um, but I have one more follow-up to that. You, I heard you say that you had no time to dream as a child. Mm. So how would you balance, which is, which is amazing because you ended up having you know, such a successful career. How would you balance the work um, of getting a child to learn the value of a dollar and work with giving them time to dream? Did you, yeah. Do you feel like there's a way to incorporate that um, in a structured way, or do, you, or do you have another idea of how you would want a child to have that, that chance to dream? Yeah, and yeah, you know, you're right, John. I think in the ideal world, um, as a parent, you can do both, right? You could teach your kids lots of lessons, but one of the biggest ones, especially among women uh, and young girls, is uh, to think bigger and to dream bigger um, and to think not to think sort of your present, whether the present is what you created or what your parents created or what your friends created or your neighbors, but beyond that, that there's a whole world out there and there's so much, so many possibilities. And from a young age to sort of get that into yourself that you have all the abilities to achieve whatever you really want. And I know that sounds kind of goofy, but you really do. Um, and I think if you really optimize that, um, the potential is fairly limitless. So I'm hoping, you know, with your kids and you out there that you think I mean, you're just at the beginning of your career, which is super. I wish I could turn back the clock and be sort of where you guys are. But, uh, yeah, just so much possibility I out do there. and I don't. Yeah. <laughs> it's an awkward stage, it too, is, though. Yeah. We'll take the first student question. Today's job applicant pool is highly competitive. Yeah. Would you say that it is imperative to pursue an MBA from a prestigious university such as Cornell? And what's your criteria for hiring people out of college? Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you for that question. Um, no, an MBA is not necessary. Uh, in some ways, I'm not, you know, I'll be very honest, I'm not sure I should have gotten an MBA. Um, I kind of did it because Cornell gave me a scholarship. I was kind of lost in my life. I was a science undergrad and I felt I missed, I didn't have some of the core business skills. Um, but most of my learnings came on the job, uh, on the ground, um, you know, whether it was at my first couple of companies that I worked for post-college. So MBA is not necessary. Um, if you do do it, uh, really understand why you're doing it. It's, not, it's no longer today as like a check mark on your resume that's required. Uh, in terms of what I look for, so I hire now instead of for my own company, for my portfolio company. John has you know, a lot of portfolio, and I think we're always looking for great talent. And, um, and my companies are kind of specific in what they do. But outside of like the sort of uh, specific uh, industry skill or domain expertise, I really look for just raw aptitude. Um, I look for folks um, who could be team players. Um, so it's the softer skills that I really care about. Um, and if you're sitting in front of me and you really want the job, I can tell that you've done your homework, you know why you're there, um, and that comes through. And often I'll give a chance to someone who may not have the perfect experience, the perfect pedigree, because they really want this job. So I think if you could convey that, you should be able to get any job you want. I absolutely 100% echo those sentiments. I mean, I. Um, I, I always tell the students, don't look at what jobs are available and then decide, oh, okay, there's no room for me. Find the company that you want to work at and then make it happen. Absolutely. Yeah, and, you, Absolutely. and you know that's what we look for in entrepreneurs. So you mentioned wanting to, um, wanting to go back or a desire to go back to some extent. Mm -hmm. If you were to go back as a freshman, what would you do differently than you did at the time? Yeah, um, yeah so I think uh, it's, college is a confusing time, I think, depending on where you came from. You know, I think for me, because I grew up only a few miles from the Harvard campus, I lived in such a different world, you know, and when I got to Harvard, it was like, I mean, the guy above me was like the Prince of Denmark, and there were all these kids from prep schools, 
Um, and it was my own insecurity. It wasn't theirs, right? That I felt like I didn't fit in. And so I spent a lot of time hiding, um, sort of making excuses not to sit in the front row. Um, I also did work study, so I worked. So I was not present. I was sort of looking towards where can I go? What will this take me? What job will this get me? Um, and while that's not necessarily bad, I don't think it's the best way to spend your college. I think you have limited time here. You have a few years, and you're with the best and the brightest people around you, the most diverse group of people that you'll ever encounter. Take advantage of being present and enjoy the time here and suck everything you can out of UCSB. Suck everything you can out of somebody like John. Um, these are very, very, it's a very, very unique time. Uh, so instead of thinking about what should I do when I graduate, on, honestly, just optimize the resources here and optimize the network and the wonderful people. I didn't really do that. I, don't, I didn't come out of Harvard with like a ton of friends or close people. So I would, if I was to go back, I would do that better. Yeah. Well, I think especially if you're a freshman or a sophomore, you have this incredible time in your life to, in a very safe way, experiment. Absolutely. And really to learn what you like and what you don't like. I think knowing what you don't like or what your proclivities are not is as important as knowing what your proclivities are. And so take that class. When we all know about the class Steve Jobs said in on calligraphy, he wasn't even going to school at that point. And that calligraphy class, he yeah. credited with really giving him that uh, aesthetic that he put into the Mac. So mm -hmm. you just don't know like which weird, strange, unusual subject matter might take you, and you certainly don't know what direction um, it'll take you. So one more, one more question about Harvard. So I found it interesting that you said when you found out you got into Harvard, it was like the saddest day of your life. I think there's a really good lesson for some of the students, but just can you elaborate on you get the, you know, that's the happiest day for most kids that get an acceptance letter into Harvard. Why, why wasn't it a happy day for you? Yeah, it's, uh, I think when I say that, I think a lot of people think I'm just kind of um, but honestly, I cried when I got the letter because, uh, you know, in my, the school I went to was a public school. Um, you know, about 20 kids go to Harvard every year. And, uh, and uh, I was lucky I got into early admissions to Dartmouth. I was picked out as the one kid um, in high school. And I don't know why they picked me, but I got into Harvard, or, I mean, got to Dartmouth early. So I always felt like I was going to go somewhere decent. I wanted to go to Wellesley. Um, you know, I think because I never, in school, I was so shy. Um, I just, I didn't understand how to like work with like large groups or teams. And when I went to visit Wellesley, it felt like such a supportive, it was all female school, uh, super nurturing. Um, and the visit was so compelling. The women there were so amazing that I just wanted to go to Wellesley. Um, and I applied and I got in. Um, but then shortly, a couple of days after, I got the acceptance to Harvard. And uh, I knew my parents really wanted me to go there. My brother had gone there. And I knew the choice was taken away from me. And it's not... I wasn't angry. I was more just, I felt I earned my way there. That as a kid, like I was an adult very young, and I felt like I personally earned my path to make that choice of where I go to college, and that choice was not given to me. Uh, looking back there, right, you know, I, I, I had to, you know, going to Harvard has not hurt me. Um, but I think it's important as a child, as a parent, to talk to your kids and really understand what motivates them. Because if I went to Wells, I would have done fine too. Yeah, yeah. Now, I think it's an interesting um, point in, in everyone's life. And again, these folks have just gone through that, but they're still making that, that transition into adulthood where yeah. you listen to your parents. I still listen to my parents. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you should always, you should always take their counsel, but at some point in your life, you have to start doing what's right for you and not what's right for them. Yeah. And I know your parents wanted you to go in the medical profession, or they just felt like that would be a great, you know, long-term career for, for you and for anyone. And it is for the right person, but yeah. you had to make that decision 
Um, and I'm sure it's a series of small decisions over time of what was truly right for you. And it's not easy. I mean, you just never really exactly know, but you sh you're getting to the age, and everyone here that's watching this as well, you know, just when you start having those gut feelings, I think mm -hmm. you have to start listening to them because nobody knows you better than yourself. Agree, yeah. And you can't live someone else's life. You're, just, yeah. you're not going to be happy doing it. So let's, let's fast forward. Um, you ended up at Stamps.com for a short time, but an interesting time because they were one of the hottest uh, pre-bubble stocks, and then they were one of the worst. And now they've actually you know, recovered, and they're a great company. Um, but you were there for a short ride, and then you, and then you ended up with this, this strange fellow named Gil Abbas and some of his friends. And I love what you said when you joined um, what became AdSense. You said, I took a chance on them, and they took a chance on me. And I think that just epitomizes what joining a startup is all about. And I think it epitomizes what taking venture capital is all about and what giving venture capital is all about. I don't know if you're going to be successful. Look, if I, if I knew you were going to be successful, you wouldn't be asking me for money, right? Yep. So we don't know, and we have to, at, at the end of the day, no matter how much, money, I mean, how much information you have, it comes down to trust. Yep. So I don't know if you, if you want to elaborate on that, but I just thought that was such a wonderful and elegant way to, to really state what we're all really doing at the end of the day. Yeah, but it's a, it's a great, great question, John. I think um, there's so much risk with joining a young company, and I think, there's, I think somebody had a question about, uh, you know, should I join a startup or should I join a big company after you graduate or should I start a company and get venture capital, et cetera? Those are all possible and wonderful choices and there's not a right answer to any of them. Um, but I think what I learned from that one experience of, uh, you know, I had come out of business school and I was a very good sort of strategist, consultant, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I met these two guys, Gil and Adam from Caltech, who were just you know, super nerds, like, could, I mean, honestly, like, so, they were so nervous to actually meet me, and it was weird, because we were talking, and they thought, they're like, oh, you do marketing, so you must be really good at PR, like, that's kind of what they saw, right. and I knew nothing about technology or databases, um, but, you know, after, like, five minutes, we realized this is a very awkward conversation, because we kind of don't know what the other person did, uh, we turned to something else, um, they said, you know, do you like to run, and I was like, yeah, I like to run, and we started talking about, like, places to run, and then we just connected on things outside of just that sort of job or the opportunity because they didn't really know what a director of marketing you know, right, was. Um, right. And you'll meet a lot of this. So I think when you go join a startup, a lot of the founders are very young. Uh, they have all these positions, but they may not know what a business development person truly does. I mean, you, yep. You'll learn with them, right? So um, I took a chance because I liked them. I liked them as people. Immediately, I felt a connection and a chemistry, and I felt like I could trust them. Um, and that gut instinct turned out to be right. And there are times it will turn out to be wrong, and you have to course correct. But uh, I think in choosing uh, to join a startup is very different than choosing a big company, right? Because these handful of people sitting in front of you, interviewing you, they're going to be your family. You're going to be living and breathing with them all the time. Um, yeah. And it... And, a startup, it becomes fully your identity. The failure, the success, the highs, the lows. It's very different than the big company where yep. you go in and you fit into something. But uh, the experience is very different. So you have to love that initial team and not just the, the one founder, but really the core group. I had a very similar experience when I joined, um, when I ended up becoming a robotics company that, that had some success. Mm. But in the very beginning, um, the founder was a surfer. Um, he was about 30, I was about 29. Um, and he had never heard of Wharton. Mm. And I remember I went home and I said to my wife, it's great. It's a good He's thing. never heard of Wharton. Yeah. Because I had just come out of the East Coast where that's the first question people ask you. Where'd you go to school? Like, yep. 
just don't put me in a box, dude. Like, don't worry about where I went to yeah. school. Yep. Don't get to know me first, right? So coming out to California, he had on board shorts, flip-flops, and a wife beater. And I'm like, wow, this is what a founder's like. This is awesome. And yeah. we, seven and a half years later, we took the company public, and, and it was family. It was, a, it was really hard to leave that family. Yeah. But you have to do that as well. Let's take the next student's question. Hi, Ava. Hi. Um, I was wondering how your job as a marketing manager has helped or hindered your career, and what skills you learned, and why did you leave? Mm. Why would you say hinder? I'm just curious what the perception of a marketing manager for you is. Um, well, I've just been interested in marketing, and mm. I just didn't, wasn't sure if like I wanted to go through that path first, mm. like right out of college or something, or like if I wanted to try something on my own, basically. Well, let me ask you a follow-up, and then Eva can answer. So what... What are you trying to get out of your first job? What is it you're looking for? Probably experience and just, like, knowledge, basically. Just learning from, like, the inside out of a company and, like, of a big corporation and just how it runs and everything, I think. Okay. Um, yeah, so if you're looking just for a great experience, that can be had by lots of different roles. Um, you know, marketing uh, nowadays is defined as so many things. It's quite broad, actually, and... Uh, marketing is, has always been very strategic and fundamental to a company's strategy, but today I think it's even more integral because I've been really fascinated by growth hacking and all these things, mm -hmm. and now marketing is super tied to product and to technology and to building it into the product um, that it's much broader than just like writing you know, PR releases. Or, and it never was that, but I think today uh, the breadth of things you could do within a marketing role is much more it's much bigger and much more interesting. Um, so I never saw it as it hindering me. Um, more so, I saw it as a path for me to become a jack-of-all-trades. And, and I'm not saying that this is the path. I'm not saying my path should be anybody else's path. But uh, marketing is a core function in an organization. If you want to do it, be the best at it. And go hard and learn everything you can. Um, but if you want to, you know, four years from doing marketing, you want to transition to sales, or you want to transition to running product, uh, marketing is a great path to any of those. But if you start with the others, it's okay too. But whatever area that you decide to specialize in, whatever industry you decide to specialize in, just go all in. You don't half-ass and say, you know, I'm just doing marketing as a, step stone, as a stepping stone to something else. That always feels unsatisfying because you're not giving that role sort of your, your all. That makes sense. And I think this is the stage in these folks' life where they can go all in. Yep. They, most of them don't have children. They don't have a mortgage. Go all in. Absolutely, no matter what you end up doing. You're going to get so much more out of it. So you guys sold your company in 2003 to Google, and everyone here is saying, oh, of course they did. Well, it wasn't a, a foregone conclusion that Google was going to be the company that it is today. Yeah. Um, I actually was part of a company that turned down an acquisition. Oh, it's fascinating. You were sharing that with we me. We turned down an offer for pre-IPO Google, yeah. um, which was obviously a huge mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I survived. But so, it, it, you know, people hear that and they go, well, of course you would have done that. But I think, again, it came down to that trust issue. You guys had to feel like this was a good home for your baby, for your company, and that inside of that home, it would thrive and yeah. you would thrive. So you became known as the Google girl. Mm. You had a, a great run there. How did, if you tell us a little bit about how you ended up at YouTube and how did you feel being like known as the Google girl? Was that, did you feel like that was a compliment or was that a little bit of a left-handed compliment or? Uh, back then, I didn't even think about it so much. I mean, I think in the uh, when we landed, you know, we were probably the small company. We had no resources, like super frugal, no perks, um, and like living like month to month on revenues, like scrapping it away. Uh, so when they bought us, and uh, I remember Larry and Sergey had come down to visit our little office, and they were, I think, you know, we had a couple offers, and it happened quickly, but 
they were so lovely. Like, mm. they never saw us as, oh, you cute little company out there. Mm -hmm. They saw us as, like, an equal. Like, they, when they came down, they didn't, like, make fun of the way our office looked or whatever. Um, so when, you know, fast forward a couple of weeks, we actually were, like, on campus. The deal was done, and the campus there was, like, just, you know, little bikes running everywhere and stuff. And I realized, man, we landed onto, like, this crazy place. It's, like, almost like another universe, yep. right? Because un unlimited resources, super brilliant and idealistic people. Right, so these kids there, I mean, I call them kids because they were just for all very young, um, that it was just like one of those places, like it was almost kind of heavenly, that mm -hmm. I couldn't believe I was kind of there. So, you know, I just, I just had a great time. It was, a, you know, I just felt super fortunate to be there. Um, and, you know, I didn't mind being called a Google girl. I don't think people just saw me as a girl or anything like that, but it was just the early days when I was flying on Southwest back, back and forth. I had a little bag that said Google pre-IP, I mean, back then it was pre-IPO, 2003 and it was people were like oh cute like google like oh you're part of google is like really fun they and today it might be something yeah today yeah. it'd be like another company like i mean uber's too big but something of that nature right you're like right. oh you work for uber you know, right so. right well i ask you that because um you know there is sensitivity obviously now i think and certainly we don't want to i think men in this industry are especially are rightfully sensitive yeah. because we don't want to sort of shut the door on somebody mentally like i don't want just a casual comment to be taken the wrong way, you know, by someone, and I don't mean any harm by it. And I don't think anybody meant harm, any harm by that either. But in the spirit of that, I know you get asked advice all the time um, about women in the workforce. How can you help women? And that's an interesting topic. But I want to ask you, speak to the young men out there that are going to be joining the tech workforce pretty soon. Yeah. What are things that you would like, if you could just whisper in their ear and say, hey, dude, you know, next time you're in a meeting, or is there things that that men are doing that, that you found awkward or you found off-putting, but they don't even realize they're doing it? Yeah, yeah. I, I, th I think um, I've been very lucky. I haven't had sort of re any really direct discrimination for both my race or for um, my gender. Um, so I'm super lucky. I've heard others that have different experiences. But I think th the stuff that uh, happens often is very nuanced. It's not like there are men out there who are malicious or malintent. Right. Um, Actually, often it's very good intent, but it just comes out wrong. Right. Uh, so it's very subtle, right? So I think especially when it comes to uh, programmers and technical fields where women, um, you know, I've studied sort of young girls and why, like, in a, as a five-year-old, you walk in a room and their computers, the boys would go towards the computers and the girls would just go, like, paint stuff. So you often wonder, like, why that? So it happens at a very young age that we're sort of programmed a little bit differently, and our communication style is very different. So... Um, if you are in a guy and you're in a, a, uh, a company, whether, you know, you're uh, in a meeting, uh, there are things that happen where if a girl, you know, uh, is in the meeting, she might be one out of ten, um, and she's a little quiet, uh, I would say, hey, you know, what do you think, Linda, mm. or whatever, mm. and just include them, right? And yep. if they just say a couple of words and they're a little tentative, just say, can you please elaborate on that, right? So including women in the conversation, if they're sitting on the side table, asking them to join in is super important, um, and just being watchful of what you say like I've, i a lot of people say oh she's such an amazing female manager why don't you say she's it's, she's just a really amazing manager right and so those things are super subtle right and it's none of it's like super wrong or anything yep. like that yep. but um i think the having uh being inclusive and making sure if you build a company and i love what kapoor mitch kapoor is doing right the kapoor capital group so recently they launched a mandate called the founders commitment where they will only fund uh, companies not that they're led by women but by men or women who have a mandate to uh, 
to make sure diversity is at the top of their list. Mm. So in their quarterly reports, as a, you know, we get as VCs, we get quarterly reports from startups. That in those quarterly reports, you tell me what are you doing to make sure that you have a diverse workforce? What are the tools? What are the programs? What are the trainings? Like he's very specific. So unless you have that or have the mentality towards that, um, he's not going to fund you. So I think I like that actually better than. Funds who are women yes. who only focus on funding women because I, I'm not sure there's actually like a long-term sustainability for a fund like that. Right. Um, but I think what Mitch Kapoor, if you look at Kapoor Capital, I think it's super progressive. Well, I, I feel the same way about funds that are solely focused on on funding a certain type of person. Yeah. Um, those are, I, mean, I know the spirit is wonderful and the intentions are wonderful, but it's it's almost like ghettoizing. Like, oh, I couldn't get money from the real world, so I got it yeah. from this special fund. I mean, it's almost. I think it can play against a great entrepreneur. They should be able to get money from anybody. I agree. And it's our job to make sure that we give money to great entrepreneurs and it really doesn't matter um, you know, what, what their background is. Yeah. And we should be able to, we should take the time and be patient to look past their, back, their background. Because as you know, we both funded people that don't necessarily fit that Ivy League pattern. And having that diversity of thought in your portfolio, I think is really important yeah. as an investor. It's selfish. Like, I want the yeah. best entrepreneurs in the world. I don't really care about their background. That's right. And it might take me a little bit longer to vet somebody that doesn't have the classic set of credentials. But that's incumbent on me to do that as an investor. It will drive better returns. Of course. I mean, all the stats show, right? Yes. Like a more diverse senior leadership, et cetera, right. just will drive better outcomes for the firm. You know? Yep. And I think it sends the right message to young people that there is a path for me. There is a path. There's role models. There's a path for me in this, in this tech world. We'll take the next student's question. Hi, Eva. Hello. I'm just wondering uh, what kind of skills and values do you find are essential in your field to become like a successful entrepreneur? So I'm going to repeat that because we didn't get it all on the mic. So okay. what, skills, um, what skills do you think are important for you to be successful as an entrepreneur? Yeah. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, there are a couple sets of core skills, and it doesn't have to be embodied in one person. So I'm a big pro- proponent of a co-founder. I don't know how you are. Yeah, um, me too. One or more co-founders. I don't think you need to have five, but uh, because not everyone possesses all the skills. Um, yep. So I like folks, for me, who are what I call visionary pragmatists. So people who can think about sort of the future and what the world should look like, what problems need to be solved, and really have an aim to do it for a really, really long time, right? Being entrepreneur, being entrepreneur doing a startup is super hard. Um, you have to want to do it for like 10 years, 20 years. It's not a two-year game. Um, so I think the visionary part is really important, but at the same time, whether it's in you as a skill set or in your partner, is having someone who's really pragmatic and can actually operate and manage stuff day-to-day. So managing the capital, um, knowing how to hire and retain, having the charisma to gather people to want to work with you. Um, so I think you need both sides of the coin. You need the long time, long so long term thinker, but you also need the short short term executor. And I think if you want to do a startup, I would look for that mix of skills. Yeah, it's being self aware and knowing where your strengths start and stop, yeah. and and putting and surrounding yourself with people that shore up those strengths yeah. and weaknesses. And that's hard when you're young. You're still trying to figure that kind of thing out. Right. It took me a, a long time until I met that surfer. Finally, yeah, that surfer. I was yeah. almost thirty, and I was starting to figure out what I was good at. So you you founded Navigating Cancer. I'd love to hear why you founded that, but also how you handled that transition because you went from founder and then you handed it off to a CEO yeah. and that's not always easy for founders. So yeah. how did that all go down? Yeah, this, it's, a, it's a really important thing to think about because I think um, often the person who ideates uh, the po- product or the concept, builds the initial prototype, isn't the right person to take it forward. 
Um, I never had any grand dreams to be a CEO. I think I've always worked with a great partner, Gil, who is a wonderful CEO. Not to say I can't be a CEO, but it just wasn't. I like building product, and I think when I did Navigating Cancer, my mission was to bring transparency uh, in terms of costs and outcomes and quality uh, of healthcare providers, specifically oncologists, uh, to consumers. So that was my mission, and I didn't give a sh like. Who did what to accomplish that? And mm -hmm. I knew my weakness back then was like I never sold into hospitals. Um, I didn't have those relationships or to pharmaceuticals. Um, so I found a wonderful woman, Gina, um, who had those contacts and that skill set. Mm -hmm. And I was like, man, you're better at pitching than I am out there. I, I'd rather <laughs> stay internal and build right. uh, the, the technology. So she took over as CEO, and ever since, it's, it's done great. So I think it's understanding that and being able to let go and not letting your ego and your pride get in the way, like, oh, this is my baby, I can't do it. Often that baby, for it to grow up, requires yep. a couple of parents, not right. just one. No, know. absolutely. And, and I mentioned you had the whole package. I think that's another example of that, is you have the, the skills to ideate and to create and found a company, but you have the humility and the self-awareness to make sure that you're putting the right people next to you. And the reality is great people see that in a leader. Great people that can go anywhere and do anything see those attributes in a leader and they're drawn to those attributes. They're not drawn to people that are you know, controlling or, or, or you know, insecure about their own abilities. So be, just be comfortable, even as a young person, just be comfortable you know, knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know and putting the right people around you, uh, the table with you. So we've mentioned Gil a few times. Yeah. We give him a lot of shout outs. You guys have worked together on and off for about 15 years. I think my career, if, if there's one thing that I think I've done well is I've partnered well. Yes. My wife, you know, my co-founders, I mean, I've, I, I've been really fortunate. What are some things that have helped make that relationship sustain over time? Every relationship has ups and downs. Were there, were, well, I'll just leave it there. I'll let, I'll let you answer. What are the yeah. things that you, what are the reasons why you think it's been so successful, a partnership? Yeah, it's been, honestly, it's the greatest privilege to work with Gil for 15 years. It's crazy when you think about that. Now I have new partners and I miss him every day. Um, I think when you start off, when you're looking for a partner in your, com in your company, or even joining a startup as a couple of people, um, it's really important that, uh, that per the people that you choose, John mentioned, being complementary in skills and all that good stuff. So that's, yeah, technically that all makes sense. You have to kind of have all that for the company to move forward. But it's really, again, the softer side of things. So I think both Gil and I, like, we always had the same sort of values and mission, which is we wanted to solve super complex things in this world. We wanted to succeed badly, um, but we never wanted to do that at the cost of others, and others being mm. your employees, um, your family, your relationship. We always understood that. Like, we wanted to always be good stewards of the people around us, good stewards of the money that we take in. Um, so I think that was really helpful, and I think we both... You know, we both have social intelligence issues. And I was, yeah, yeah, <laughs> we all do. Yeah, I was, like, so shy. And he's, like, kind of awkward if you meet him at I times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but we both had strong emotional intel intelligence, which is being very transparent with each other. We fought a lot, uh, but we always said sorry. Um, and I think those are the things where you have two people that can go at each other. But in the long run, we respected each other as people. Yep. Uh, and, you know, we built great trust and respect. So I think you have to respect your partner, you know, whether it's a husband or wife or whether it's yep. a, a working partner. You know? And you know you have that relationship when you can have pointed conversations about issues that d doesn't damage the friendship. Yes, you yes. Know, the friendship is intact. That's not in question. But I don't agree with you on this. And that's what you need in business, and you certainly need it in your personal life as well. Yeah. Um, and so strive for that if, as a young entrepreneur. I'll, I'll take the next student's question. Uh, what made you interested in switching from big companies to getting involved with um, nonprofits, specifically with like improving youth education? Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you for that. Um, 
Yeah, so I spent uh, the last eight years working with a, a nonprofit called Iridescent and Technovation, and we served more than like 15,000 kids um, uh, from K through 12, and I specifically focus on STEM and STEM skills. And um, I think what I saw when I was going through the workforce was, uh, A, diversity was a major issue. Uh, if you go to the Valley, a lot of people there, uh, you know, there's diverse people, there's Asians and others, but a lot of people there came from a fairly standard pedigree, like yep. they went to Stanford, yep. blah, blah, blah. Yep. Um, their parents were engineers, uh, they went to Menlo Park High School. Like exactly. that's, like, there's nothing wrong with those people, uh, nothing wrong with them. Um, but I felt like there's just a lot of brilliant people around the world. Um, and, you know, I actually recently invested in a, uh, a company in Africa that actually brings STEM skills to kids in Africa because we believe that, you know, brilliance is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. And that's our model. Um, and I felt in the U.S., not going as far as Africa, in the U.S., we have lots of issues here. Education sucks in, uh, to a big degree. Um, and, and with technology, while technology has brought a lot of opportunities for people to communicate and connect, it actually has also increased the divide of, in terms of income. Uh, so I always felt like being able to work with young kids and uh, getting them the tools, the education, the curriculum, the mentors, um, it's really important for them to know at a young age that they can actually do it, despite this story not matching the story of the Mark Zuckerbergs and others. So that's been a mission yep. of mine, and it's been super fulfilling. It's really what John has done here with, the, with everybody here for many, many years. So. Well, that's interesting because my, my next question was, is somewhat related to that. At mm -hmm. Sousa Ventures, you've got some great partners. Um, as I mentioned in the outset, your focus is on data-driven companies. Have, but how much of your, your desire to see that opportunity get distributed more widely, how much of that had bleeds over into your for-profit investing? You know, with yeah. SUSE, in other words, let me reform that ill-formed question. What are your long-term goals for SUSE? When you joined yeah. that, part, when you created that firm, what were your long-term goals for that? And does it bleed over into your philanthropic goals? Uh, yeah, it's, I think it's an interesting question. I think there are funds that are more social impact funds. Right. Um, you know, our fund exists because we ultimately do want to make money because funds can't stay alive. One and done. Um, yeah, you, get, you know, I mean, other people won't give you money to invest if you don't do well. Right. Um, so do, and that means investing in the best companies and the best entrepreneurs, the best ideas, regardless of where they come from or, or what they're trying to achieve, et cetera. So I think we have to fit that first. Um, but that said, like, I think it's always more gratifying when you find a company like Endella, which I mentioned, that has a double bottom line, um, or LendUp. We have a subprime loan that's mm. done really well. Uh, and they basically provide loans to the unbankable. So when that works, it's great. What's more important, though, so I struggle with this because I think about, you know, I've done well, um, and I live in the world of privilege, right? Like the circle I run into, it's some like 1% of, like less than 1%, right? So I'm cognizant of it every day because that's not where I came from. Right. And I'm cognizant of what it takes to serve others. Um, so I do a lot of nonprofit work because I think, and I focus specifically on underprivileged. Like it's not, I don't focus on trying to cure malaria or something like that. Um, but, you know, as part of the California Community Foundation, that is a very large $1.4 billion uh, organization. And last year we gave away $155 million to L.A. underprivileged. Wow. And, and uh, I think if I could do it at scale and my fund allows me to do that, meaning allows me to make the income, I no longer feel guilty about that. Right, like I'm okay True. making money because if right. I make money, I could give it back. Right. I could find more time to be free. So I struggle with that. You know, coming out of Google, I was like, oh man, I've done so well. Should I go to like work in a village in Africa? Like, you know, and I would <laughs> right. have had a great time. I right. would have liked right. it, right? But um, I felt like I needed to amplify sort of what I know and uh, empower others who have those 
causes and reasons, and I could do it at a much greater level. Right. So that's just something for you guys to think about. I know a lot of folks struggle, struggle with like, I really want to be a social worker, but I also want to build a company. Like, what do I do? And it, it's it's a t tough decisions. Well, I think it's less binary than it used to be. Yeah. I think now you know you can combine those elements in one company if it's a, if it's out as a social focus, or you can have a parallel track sort of as you're doing, and occasionally those two will will intertwine a little bit. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think. You're giving back money and time, and I think that's that's so important. Um, it's one thing to write a check, and I'm not down on anybody that writes checks because we need checks. Lots of needy causes need them. But when you then take that next step and give her your time, and that's something young people can do. They may yeah, not be able to write a step. check, but they can give her their time. And every single experience is a learning experience. Yeah. Even if you're sitting down with a fourth-grade kid and helping them learn to read, that is a great experience for you. Absolutely. Even though outwardly it seems like you're, you're being very um, you know, gracious in that experience, it's a great experience for you. Absolutely. You guys should, should definitely make that a focus. So we're talking about um, looking for entrepreneurs that may not have the usual pedigrees. And, and I know we all, I mean, all my companies are like my children, right? I don't mm -hmm. have favorites. Yeah. But are there any entrepreneurs, and you don't have to name them necessarily, but were there any entrepreneurs that when you first met them, you just were taken by them? And if so, what, what did they say or do or what was it about them that caused you to be so taken? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's that magical moment, right? I mean, you've, you felt this and, you know, you look at thousands of companies a year. Right. Um, I looked last year, almost 2,000 companies, right? So it's like a noisy place. Yes. And there's so many ideas and so many wonderful people who want to build cool stuff. So it's very hard to select the 10 that you're going to yep. do a year, whatever number that most VC firms do. So it's very, uh, it's very hard to get money from VCs, right? Super hard. Um, and so for me, like I think, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, I think sitting across from somebody, there's one guy, uh, there's several, but one that stood out to me, his name is Jake Heller. Um, his company's called Case Text. He's a, his mission is to make law uh, completely free and accessible to everyone in the world. And wow. he's going up against uh, LexisNexis and Westlaw, two very expensive databases that lawyers pay hundreds of thousands of dollars yep. a year to access law that dutifully and constitutionally should be free to us. So that's his mission is to build a company that's much more democratic and accessible. Um, so when I met him, uh, when he told me this mission, I was just like, God, that's going to be hard because these guys are billion-dollar companies that are way ahead of you, and they have uh, locked up a lot of content that's very expensive, very hard to get, so there's huge barriers to entry. Um, it's not building like you know, a simple like, app or right. something like that. Right. And um, he said, well, I know I can do it. And I was like, well, why do you think you can do it? And he was just like, well, you know, he, I mean, granted, he did graduate from Stanford Law Review, and he was the head of Law Review, but he was also a programmer when he was 10 years old. So he would, like, twink, and I thought to myself as he was sharing his story, um, and it, it wasn't like he grew up wealthy, but he just, you know, he had the good pedigree. Uh, right. He was telling me, I was looking at him, I was like, man, if I was going to make a bet on one person to solve this freaking hard problem, right. it's going to be Jay Keller. And I say this to him today. Like, that moment when, he's, when he was just sharing why he wanted to do this and why he was obsessed with doing this, I was like, if somebody could do it, it would be him. Right. He may not be able to do exactly. it. I don't know. Yep. But I'm literally going to bet on this horse versus some of the other ones, right? Because he just sparkled when he told me. Like, it, it felt like he was been... He was born to kind of solve this. Yeah. If that makes any sense. And it sounds like he had that combination that I look for of, of clueless yeah. and fearless. Yes, And yes. you think, why would you invest in something that's clueless? Like, that's ridiculous. But if they really weren't clueless, they wouldn't get out of bed. Because yeah, it's yeah. going to be hard, as yeah. you've seen, as I've experienced. So you want to be a little naive, but you don't want to be, you want to be absolutely fearless. And I think jobs epitomize that where, you know, when you look at, at what he was up against with IBM and all the old HP, all those old big companies, he didn't care. Yeah. He had a better way of doing it. He was convinced of that, and he and his team went out and did it. So I look for the same things, and I don't find it very often. It's mm -hmm. really hard. It's, I think that combination is rare. 
Agreed. it's hard to find. Agreed. But we're always looking for it. Yeah, and I think Ben Horowitz talks about courage as sort of his. Ben Horowitz is the, the partner of Andreessen Horowitz, probably right. one of the most famous VCs, but he often says his main attributes, I mean, you could talk about persistence and hard work and all this other stuff, but for him, it's courage, right? right. That's his, like, the thing that he looks for. You and know? for young people, sometimes they struggle with where does courage end and hubris begins, mm. you know, and so they come, maybe they think, oh, I read these books, and so I'm going to act overly confident, and that's not what we're looking for. That's right. We're, we're looking for humility, you know, a sense of um, understanding of the world, but a fearless sense of understanding of the world. Correct. We'll take the next student's question. Yeah, so a lot of the uh, kind of like lean startup theory seems to say that we should do as much sales and marketing as possible kind of pre-build to make sure that we're building something that people actually want. Mm. So with the project I'm currently working on, we're, we're doing a waiting list, but we don't really know how long to make the waiting list and how we can make the first 10 spots more attractive than the 500th. So my question is kind of just uh, what marketing measures we can take pre-launch to try to ensure a successful launch. Um, it's a great question, and there's not like one answer because it depends on what you're building. So we could have a longer conversation afterwards, um, and you could send me an email for sure. Um, I don't want to give you a superficial, like, one sort of, like, I would have to understand what you're doing. Um, but I think getting users, if you're doing something that's more like enterprise platform, uh, B2B, then you need like a, just a couple of pilot customers or larger companies. If you're doing more of a consumer app, it, in the consumer, there's a wide variety of consumer apps, right? Like if you're building a marketplace, um, like an Etsy is very different than if you're building a Snapchat type of company. The metrics are different. So just make sure the metrics are contextual to what you're doing. It doesn't have to be super ambitious, but I think as a VC, we just want to see that you've built something that can kind of work and that somebody wants to use it. Right. I mean, that really is it, right? And the more eager they are to use it, the better, right? So often if you're building it while you're a freshman in college, like, just get the people around you to use it. If, if this is your target audience. If it's not, if it's for seniors, go to Santa Barbara and talk to seniors and whatever that might be, right? So getting a small, rabid group of folks that not only signs on but continuously uses and engages is sort of the biggest metric. We talked about that with Troy Carter, the first 50. Lady Gaga got mm. 50 rabid fans yeah. that were all over the world, didn't necessarily know each other, and that was sort of that foundation for the next 500, the 5,000 gazillion. Yes. Yeah, but you need to start with the first 50, and they're often the hardest to get. Agreed. So I, I want to go back to partnering a little bit. Um, how did Sousa Ventures come together? You have three partners. I don't, I'm not clear on how you all knew each other in the past. I know yeah. Leo. He's yeah. the one I work with the most. But how did that partnership come together? Yeah, it's, it was kind of serendipitous, John, honestly. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I was leaving. I was thinking about, I was at Factual for six years, had an amazing ride, raised a lot of money. And, yep. um, and I was thinking, you know, my friend Seth actually approached me and said, hey, like, you know, you might make a good VC. Like, let's do some angel investments together. Um, and it was kind of just serendipitous and random, honestly. I, I wasn't thinking I was going to go raise a fund. Like, it wasn't in my future. Right. And this is what's funny in life, right? It's kind of like, just keep your eyes open because there's stuff, like, everywhere. And often it just takes you saying yes to it. <laughs> yes right. to it. Right. Um, it wasn't planned. Um, but my partners have been great. Um, but I think, uh, and now confidentially, but not confidentially, I'm actually moving on from SUSE oh, and okay. starting a different fund with a new partner. Um, but I think finding partners is the same as anything. It's like it has to work really well, and it has to work. A fund, as I don't know if many of you know, but uh, running a fund seems easy and often like kind of a sexy, glamorous thing to do. <laughs> but it's a very long career, yes. right? Like you sign these documents when you take other people's money to invest. It's a 10-year document at minimum. minimum. Yeah. Um, 
So you got to be very careful sort of how you choose because uh, you're legally bound to serving these companies and serving your partners right. and being with your partners for a really, really long time. It's, uh, I can't remember, I think Bill Gurley said this, it's the hardest career to exit. Mm-hmm. You know, people think I could just invest for a couple of years and if I don't like it, I'm going to bounce. Right. Um, that's not how it works. I mean, I am going to be leaving SUSE too, but not without leaving economics on the table. Sure. And, you know, it's been, it's a separation. Yep. And there are things that go along with that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's... Being in that business and thinking about my future, I think about that a lot. Like, yeah. how do I how do I do right by my partner and my companies, yep. and then still follow that path that, that, that I want to follow as well? So it doesn't sound like you struggled with your path is similar to mine. I did angel investing for a while, and then I said, well, I'm not terrible at it. I don't think I'm great at it, but I I enjoyed it. My concern was being a lifelong operator like you were that I would be frustrated mm-hmm. by being a just in quotes, an investor. Yeah. And I found I wasn't because yeah. I'm a bit more lazy than I used to be. <laughs> right. And so simply giving advice and then going, okay, good luck, it was, a, was a bit appealing to me at that point in my life. Um, but it doesn't sound like you struggle with that. You, 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 you made that transition pretty flawlessly. Or were there days where you were like, oh, I wish I was back in the business of running these companies or... Yeah. Does it kind of go back and forth in your mind? I think both you and I are similar. We've had long careers prior yeah. to going You're a fair bit younger than yeah. me. Uh, no, not really. <laughs> uh, long careers before we uh, decided to do this path, right? So it's a very thoughtful decision. And, right. Um, I miss operating. I think it's a struggle. I always tell, like, I think a lot of young folks, um, especially young women, come to be like, I want to be a VC. Like, I want to be a VC now. Right. Uh, what do I need to do? And I was just like, oh, you know, you're 25. Don't be a VC. Go build something. <laughs> yes. Because I really feel, um, you know, this is an overused quote, but uh, history is not made by VCs. History is made by, is made by founders. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think the best and the most brilliant people should go build things or work for companies. And you don't have to be a, do a startup, by the way. Like, that's not what I'm advocating at all. Right. Um, but, you know, go and work for exciting companies, the larger, small um, you know, I think that's a, a great uh, a great thing to do. So. Well, I think the, the the role of a VC has changed over time. So if you go back to the '90s, it was yeah. a banker mentality, right? Yeah. I have the money. Okay, now I'm going to financially engineer a win for me. And if you end up making money too, great. Yeah. It was a very different relationship. And then we had the whole Mark Suster, Breitfeld, sort of Dixon, these guys that were, that came from being entrepreneurs to VC. Um, and I think I think our sentiment has changed because we've been on the other yeah. side of the table and yeah. we understand how hard it can be. Yeah. And I think that's healthy for everybody. But I agree with you. VCs aren't going to make the future happen, but we should be able to support, support that, it, yeah. that future happening. And knowing not, not to take the steering wheel, right? That's right. the hard part, uh, I think, is when you see very young entrepreneurs, yes, yes. they're wide-eyed and they think, oh, I'm sitting across from you know, Brad, like, this is a god, and whatever he said, <laughs> that, whatever that drips out of his mouth should be I'm followed. Do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, but that's not the case. We're just all humans, exactly. and some of our advice sucks, honestly. Right, um, right. So I think it's important to filter um, what comes out of sort of your, the people who back you, as well as just mentors around you, professors. Like, it's not, they're not always right. No. Um, you know, so I think it's important. To I, the, when I sit down with young entrepreneurs that I've invested in, when, they're not so young, but they're younger than me, for yeah. sure. And that's one of the things I say to them is I say, your job is to listen to everyone and ignore most of us. Yeah. And that's your job. I can't tell you what to ignore, but I can tell you to listen to everything and understand why somebody said it. That's right. And then you decide what's right for the business. And, and actually, uh, Mark Sister said something to me one time, which I thought was, was spot on. He said, our job is to support the CEO as long as we think that he or she is the, is, is the right person for this job. Yes. As soon as we don't believe that, then our job is to find the right person for this job. Yeah. And I think once a board has that clarity, it becomes a lot easier to be a board member. Instead of people, like you say, grabbing the wheel all the time, and then you come to another board meeting, and you're like, wait a minute, when did that happen? Oh, well, so-and-so 
had an offsite and decided to, you know, yeah. hijack the company. So yeah. it's, it's not necessarily easy from that standpoint when you've been an operator because your tendency is to jump in and, quote, help, but oftentimes your help can completely de- you know, derail what's happening. Bingo. Yep. 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 We'll take another student's question. Hi, Eva. Hi, hello. Um, what would you say your biggest mistake of your career has been and what events preceding led you to make that mistake? Hmm, the biggest mistake. Um, Coming here today? Yeah, exactly. Driving up two hours. <laughs> no. Um, I, you know, honestly, people ask me that question, and I'm not going to... I haven't made any huge mistakes. I've made, I've made decisions where I'm like, oh, you know, I could have done that a little better, or I could have treated that person a little better, mm-hmm. I could have optimized that a little better. But, um, and I'm not saying this with arrogance. Uh, you know, I, I could have t- made other choices and maybe ended up somewhere equally as interesting or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always been very good about once I'm feeling something is not right, I kind of take off. And I know that's a very, very weird thing, but I left uh, YouTube when I was at the height of you know, working at YouTube. Uh, I left Factual and people were like, why would you ever leave? Exactly. You know, right. things like that. And I just feel like whenever I felt like, man, I could be doing something more. I'm a little bit complacent. Um, I know if I have that sort of gut feel, I should have left like six months ago. And every time I've jumped, I've landed on something that was equally as interesting, uh, harder often, more challenging, but I've learned faster and grown faster. So I think for everyone here, if you're in a situation where you're just kind of like, ah, I feel like I'm a little bored. It's not quite right. And I'm not saying don't stick it out. Like, that's not the message here. But really that you, you often will know when it's time to move on, um, especially if you're starting to feel, like, not challenged by something. Yeah, I think that's a good rubric. If it starts yeah. to become comfortable, yeah. then it probably is a, it's an opportunity to be uncomfortable somewhere yeah. else and continue to learn. Yeah. Uh, and that's easier said than done because I've been in that situation where I was quite comfortable and then I did leave. And, of course, at the end, I mean, after that experience, you're like, why did I wait so long? Yeah. But, you yeah. always, it seems like it always takes a little, a little bit of hindsight to know how, when was too long, too long. So you work with, you were doing big data before that was a buzzword, right? Um, you, that's a large part of your career. But data can only take us so far as VC because oftentimes we're sitting down from somebody that doesn't have a lot of data. Mm. Have you, do you, are there any specific instances you can recall where the data said one thing but you did something else? Where you just went with your gut and it turned out to either be right or wrong? Yeah, um. You know, as a seed investor, both you and I are, and, um, and I know you do Series A, even as, there's not a whole lot of data around. I mean, right. I think you were talking about metrics and stuff, but it's, most of it's wrong, honestly. Like, I mean, Mark had this great, Mark Seuss had this great post about CACs and LTVs, and right. he's like, most people don't know what it is, and even when they calculate it, it's wrong. Inconsistent. Uh, yeah. um, you know, but we still, as VCs, demand it on the slide, you know, right. but uh, half the time it's wrong, so... Um, so I think in terms of numbers, like I think, yes, it's good to run the models. Yes, it's good to understand unit economics, all that, all that stuff. Um, but as a seed investor, I'm really just looking for the story and solving something to me that I think is worthy of being solved. And you're the right person, the perfect person, not the perfect, the right person, the right team to solve it. So for me, it's that. Um, I think the bigger question of outside of being a VC is like data versus intuition mm-hmm. um, and instinct or in some points, hindsight. Yep. Uh, you know, I think, honestly, intuition is, uh, or gut, is really data. But it's data from your brain, and the brain is sort of the ultimate sort of black box algorithm uh, is up here. We just can't 
often convey and we can't program it. Right. Um, but even intuition is based on data, right? So um, I think in your world, uh, in your, uh, if you're running a project or a company, like definitely have the data to, to, to support you, but also trust your gut and instinct. Um, I think what the data can do, though, is I think we all have interesting biases from our background. We see patterns based on how we grew yep. up and yep. things we interact with and our experiences. Some of it good and some of it is bad. And I think data helps validate those hypotheses or invalidate them and say, hey, I thought the answer was clearly 80% this way. You run the data, like it's not. The answer is super not obvious because yep. the data shows it otherwise. So always balance the two. But I never agree that intuition is not, intuition is not, you know, human intuition is not data driven because I think it is data driven actually. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I read these posts by some young, younger um, Silicon Valley-based mm. bloggers, and they're well-intended, but oftentimes it's so data-centric. Yeah. You know, and we all know that with cognitive bias, data can mean what you want it to mean in many cases. So I just think, I think not being a slave to the data, like, like yeah. you say, even though you want the entrepreneur to go through that CAC calculation, oftentimes you really just want to see how they approach the problem. Yes. You're not yes. looking for that fourth decimal place and going, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. You just want to see them go through that process. And make sure. yeah. um, but are there anything... Is there anything that we can do as a community or is there any message that, that, that will help us hear women's voice in tech more and more? Because there are more and more women in tech, mm. but I'm not sure we're hearing their voices at, at the same, at a proportional rate. And I'm just mm. hoping that changes over time. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair observation. I mean, I think, um, you know, women, uh, especially the ones who have taken on sort of more leadership roles, they're pulled in so many different directions. It's so hard. Yes. Uh, to get an hour from them. Um, so I respect that. Um, I think it's really just people like you realizing that there are a lot of interesting women out there and taking the time to reach out to them um, and not to reach out to them to fill that woman's spot, right? right? So often you have a panel, there's three guys, and I would get a call. And I was like, <laughs> of course, you know, because you, you need a girl there. Um, right. But not because of that reason, right? right? But believing that there's now, there's more interesting women VCs out there. There's actually quite a few now. Yep. Uh, and a lot more interesting women entrepreneurs, especially in L.A. Like, L.A. is great because we have so many amazing, like Laura Wolf, Laura Fine, we have Honest Company, uh, seriously, so Tracy many. From Tracy. Tracy from Tracy. Yeah, yeah. I love her. Yeah. Um, just uh, incredible women with really crazy backgrounds, right? Like not your traditional background. So I think just recognizing those people um, and you know giving them flexibility when they come, which you did with me, which is amazing. He was just like, just come any one month or five. You know that I think was I was just like, man, I got to go up and hang out with John. You know, because um, you made it so inviting. Wow, thank and, you. Uh, thank you for that. What a note to end on. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.